Good afternoon. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I'm Susie Larson, and this is Live the Promise. And we are here to help you engage in a strong and active walk of faith. So glad you tuned in. Hope you've had a great day so far. Well, this is kind of a heavy topic. In fact, it may not be suitable for younger ears for this first hour. We're going to be talking about the anatomy of an affair. How to affair-proof your marriage. What are some of the factors that play into couples uh, when somebody steps out and... Uh, has an affair. When it comes to adultery, have you ever thought, well, that will never happen to me. That doesn't apply to me. I have heard that so many times. But I think in the day that we're in, you just basically, either you yourself have found yourself in an emotional affair or you know someone and love someone who has. It's more prevalent, I think, than we even know. And then you think about how many never tell, right? Um, my guest today is Dave Carter, and he returns to talk about affairs and attractions and how addictions and how they develop and how we can guard our marriage against them. Again, his book, it's got a, this is a new one, and it's kind of workbook size, titled Anatomy of an Affair, How Affairs, Attractions, and Addictions Develop and How to Guard Your Marriage Against Them. We've got three copies. This is such an insightful, well-researched book. Not taking calls today, but you know the drill. If you listen often enough, just email me, Susie at MyFaithRadio.com. Dot com. You can put Dave Carter, Anatomy of an Affair, or something like that in the subject line. And if you remember your mailing address, you'll automatically be in the drawing. Three of you will receive a copy probably later on by the end of this week. A couple quick announcements before we hear from Dave. Just want to say a special, amazing, overwhelming thank you for all of you who showed up for our Fall Share event. Again, we're just overwhelmed. We're excited about what God's doing. So thrilled to be doing this journey together. And I just pray God's richest, richest blessings on you and yours. And uh, what an honor it is to be conduits of God's kingdom work on the earth today. Well, also, if you live in the Twin Cities area or you're willing to make the trek, I just want you to know I'll be speaking at Emmanuel Christian Center this Friday night for a sisterhood event, and it happens to be free. I'll be speaking on the God's power to restore our soul, and this is a message very near and dear to my heart. Be some amazing worship, just a great girlfriend's kind of night. And if you need more information, you'll find it on my Facebook page. And if you want to find my Facebook page, it's facebook.com slash deeper life in Christ. All right, my guest today right this. Many times when men and women who have had affairs are telling their story, they begin by saying, it all started so innocently. After all, most people who've had an affair are not looking to do so. Let me tell you about my guest. We'll get him on the show. Dave Carter is a pastor and counselor who specializes in adultery and recovery, adultery recovery and prevention. He's appeared on Oprah, Discovery Health, Learning Channel, and has offered his expertise to organizations like the U.S. Army and Navy, Tony Robbins Passion Project, Marriage Uncensored, Salvation Army, and American Association of Christian Counselors. He and his wife of over 50 years have four children and eight grandchildren, and we're so glad to have him back on the show with us today. So good to have you back, Dave. Well, I'm good. glad to be here. Looking forward to this. Well, looking forward to the conversation so very much. The title of your book, Anatomy of Affair, really looking forward to digging into that. But as you know, because we start every day with Scripture, wondering if you've got a passage of Scripture uh, that you can share with us. Well, I think last time I chose Proverbs, uh, I mean, uh, Song of Solomon 18, but I'm going to choose Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, where God talks, if you put him first, he'll walk you through life's journey wonderful uh, confidence, Hmm. uh, trust in the Lord. You know, he'll take you through it. He'll bring you out of it. Good news, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. Well, in the beginning of the book, you share how most couples you've worked with admit that their affair started out so innocently, and you've worked with 
probably more couples than you can count. But say more about just that whole idea where they're after the fact they've gotten their bell rung, but beforehand or they look back, it's like there was no intention. Well, I think that's true of most of the Christians, certainly. Mm. Uh, but this is a very different culture. This is a culture where kids have grown up in homes where primary caregivers, parents, abandoned them and broke promises. So these kids who are getting married today, they don't trust somebody's word because they've seen it doesn't work. Mm. And so we, call, we talk a lot about attachment injuries in this generation, and they will often refer to it as, I have trust issues. I can't trust anybody. I can't lean into a relationship. I'm always afraid it's going to come apart. There might be somebody better around the corner. So it's a very different culture uh, than what we've ever faced before. It's going to get worse. And, you know, um, there, I, and this is something we've slightly touched on, and we're actually going to cover more in the days ahead. But the idea that young women are walking out at unprecedented rates. I mean, oftentimes it's the guy who takes the bad rap. And I mean, guys do step out at times, but there are lots and lots of of men who are in what they thought were, was a viable marriage. And on a dime, the woman turned and walked away. And I asked Dr. Emerson Egrick about that. And he said they are seeing that in unprecedented numbers. And it, partly because of what you connected to just um, what they'd seen modeled. Um, maybe yeah. there's even some entitlement, but he said one of the most common reasons young women are just on a dime, turning around, walking away is, I'm bored. Like, like that, that's enough of a reason to leave the marriage. Have you seen anything like that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I am definitely seeing more couples coming in for therapy where the woman has stepped out of the marriage. And, you know, as women mix with men more and more in different settings and ministry settings and going to the gym and hiking clubs and uh, ministry opportunities, feeding the poor, whatever, you are going to meet people uh, who you're not married to that love this endeavor that the two of you are engaged in, and it's very easy to develop feelings, affections, uh, admiration, all that kind of stuff, even uh, unplanned. Hmm. And this is another thing. You said that denying an, that an attraction exists is not the answer. In fact, it actually intensifies things. So if someone notices someone on a ministry team or at work or wherever, on a mission field where they go on a short-term mission trip, and they notice uh, that there's an actual attraction, denying it actually intensifies things. Say more, if you would. Well, it drives it underground. You don't really address the issue. The best way to disarm that kind of attraction, which I want to say is very common and will happen to everybody that's listening to us, whether unless they're dead or dying or in denial, because in this culture it's just going to happen. The best way to disarm it, talk to your spouse about it. You need to say to them, you know, I'm finding these feelings coming up. The worst thing you could do is begin to feed it by going digital or private communication or conversation. And when the conversational topics move from what's outside of you and what's professional and what's external to what's going on inside and what's personal, at that point you are creating a mood-altering experience and you're starving the marriage and feeding the friendship. Mm, wow. We're going to get more into that in here just a moment. But I want to look at the four phases of a close call that you outlined in the book. And the first one was growing mutual attraction. Speak to that one, if you would. Well, growing mutual attraction uh, it can even be a secret between the two of you. You might never even realize this person has feelings for you as well. They might not have showed everybody's on guard against it. They don't want to 
be labeled as doing something they shouldn't be doing. And there's all kinds of legal issues in the workplace as well trying to protect that kind of thing from happening. But it does happen all the time. But you, you will come to a fork in the road where you will say something about your feelings for this person. And when you do, then it kind of becomes a secret stash for both of you to kind of call on. Mm. It's your little secret mood alteration alterating or alteration experience. Like you could just meet in the break room at 10 o'clock, and it's kind of a thing you set up. But you look forward to it. You anticipate it. You get all excited about it. You find yourself dressing differently, acting differently, uh, making sure you look better. Uh, It goes crazy what people will do when they get into these little emotional uh, uplifting experiences. We call them emotionally charged friendships. So they go from growing mutual attraction, but this entanglement phase, the second phase, is when at some point one or both start to admit I'm attracted to you, or like they, they kind of cross the line. And you say once they do that, kind of everything changes because even the way that they connect and why they connect and how yeah. they connect is even more overt, isn't it? Well, when you know somebody likes you and they're having feelings for you, you don't just put that out of your mind. You might try to, but when you lay awake at bed at night and look at the ceiling, guess what you're going to think about? Mm. When you get a little uh, slow moment at work, guess what you're going to go back to and reflect on? When you get ready to see them again, guess what you, what's going to come to the forefront of your mind? This relationship will. That's just the way it works. It, it, remember when you fell in love and, and when you're an adolescent? I mean, <laughs> that's just the way. It's the same thing. And this is what's interesting. In this entanglement phase, they start admitting their feelings. And so, as you say, their encounters are charged with emotion. And that kind of builds until you say um, spontaneous combustion occurs like it's just yeah. to build, it's sort of inevitable if you continue on that path. Yeah, it is. It does become inevitable. Um, but sometimes in there, people become very frightened as well because they know they're going to get in trouble one way or the other. They know that where they are and where they find themselves is going to provoke a response or a disappointment or a lot of anger or a threat to the marriage. So they kind of like practice what maybe you and I have done when we are on a diet and we know there's a pint of our favorite ice cream in the freezer. And we say, you know, one teaspoonful won't hurt. And so we kind of sneak over there and grab the ice cream and have a teaspoonful, and it's so good. And then we say to ourselves, what the heck? You know, I already broke my diet. I might as well eat the whole thing. And that's how it works. <laughs> that's how it works. Wow. So we're talking about these phases. We're going to take a break in just a moment here. But growing mutual attraction, and then we cross over to where one or both people involved start to admit that there's an attraction there. And as, as Dave says, it becomes a secret stash. And before we go to break, i got to have you comment on this. You write this about this particular phase. The denial is so powerful that if you told this adulterer-to-be that within 24 hours he would violate his values, threaten his marriage, and risk his career, he would deny it. So on one hand, it's building under the surface, but before the yeah. combustion happens, I mean, once that happens, that's when they lose yeah. kind of logic. Is that right? Oh, they do. Yeah. They do. They give up. Hmm. They give up fighting it. And uh, remember, life is complicated. It can be dull. It can be very functional, and it can actually be boring at times and exhausting. And so this becomes a, a, a distraction. This becomes the good moment in the day, the lighthearted moment. We always say first-time affairs are about two things, comfort, comfort, very, very important, and distraction from stress. Wow. 
Okay. That's why it works. Mm. Comfort and distraction from stress. So yeah. if you already find yeah. yourself delving into things for comfort, I would challenge you to back up and, and move to God with that. Just to say, Lord, meet me in this place. What it is? What is it? Because you know how scripture talks about that the heavens gasp because we drink from broken cisterns that cannot satisfy. And if there's a lot of pain in your life that you're looking for distraction, there's many other healthy ways to pursue it. We'll talk about that as well. Talking to Dave Carter, his book is titled Anatomy of an Affair, How Affairs, Attractions, and Addictions Develop, How to Guard Your Marriage Against Them. Powerful book. Email if you want in on the drawing, Susie at MyFaithRadio.com. We'll be back in a minute. you're having a great day. Really glad you tuned in today. I'm Susie Larson. This is Live the Promise. Talking to Dave Carter. Title of his book is Anatomy of an Affair. How Affairs, Attractions, and Addictions Develop and How to Guard Your Marriage Against Them. And we talked about these four phases of a close call. Actually, we got through two of them. The first one was just growing mutual attraction where you just maybe notice you're looking forward to seeing that person, whether it's at work or at church. But then you cross a line to entanglement where one or both admit there's something going on here. And Dave says that kind of becomes your secret stash. And that is a place where you deny it and you push it down, you hide it, and you dance around it. Spontaneous combustion is going to happen in a matter of time. So the best way to disarm it is go to your spouse and be honest about it. Well, the next uh, phase would be the destabilization of the relationship. And Dave, I thought it was so interesting. You say that the typical on-again, off-again tendency that happens between adulterers is actually destabilizing not only to their relationships, I guess that's for obvious reasons, but also to their health and even their job performance. So they're having this passion, this awakened excitement, probably feelings like they haven't ever felt in a long time thinking I was made for this, but all around them things are crumbling. So speak to that dynamic. Well, uh, they found the soulmate, they think, okay? But the other side of them produces a lot of guilt and shame. And, of course, the longer they're in this emotionally charged relationship, and maybe hopefully not, but maybe a sexual relationship, they also begin to see the warts on the other person's uh, life, so to speak, the problems, the difficulties. And that's how can we usually say these kind of affairs last 18 to 24 months, hmm. and uh, they, they kind of self-implode. But as they go through this process, uh, they get exhausted by the emotion, and they feel torn between the two. And when a guy's involved in something like this, he would only go back to his wife because of kids or money. He never goes back because he loves the wife more than he loves the girlfriend. The girlfriend has brought feelings alive in his life that he hasn't felt since he was a teenager. So, but that obligation, the kids and the, the, the family finances and all, really put a lot of stress. And the girlfriend usually puts pressure. You know, you need to leave her. You need to get divorced. You need so we can be together. So he goes back and forth in this. And that's exhausting. It's very exhausting. But remember... People go to Vegas and practice this all the time with the one-armed bandits. It's the same reinforcement pattern. You never know when you're going to strike it rich and when you might win. So you continue to invest money in it. This is how we feed monkeys in time in trials. They have the, the, the food bar pellet. They never know when they're going to get it. 
Intermittent reinforcement is one of the most powerful behavioral determinants known to man. But it, wouldn't that be a deceptive? Of course, it's deceptive on the one arm bend in Las Vegas and all that. Um, but it would just be as deceptive with, I'm going to, I would rather continue and try to find another woman and another woman until I strike it rich or whatever. Because I would imagine if the passion wears out 18 to 20 months, and let's say you leave your family and you start with this person and get married. It's not going to stay that way. Suddenly you find yourself with four times the baggage. I mean, speak to that. Oh, if you yeah, yeah. Yeah, you do. But, but you don't think about all that kind of stuff. Usually the intermittent reinforcement comes around when they say, we've got to quit, we've got to stop. So they stop. They stay with each other for a week or two. But then one of them will call, how you doing? Are you okay? You know, we can get together and just talk about this. We don't have to act out. We can just go back to being friends. Well, it doesn't happen. Hmm. So, but that's the lie that they begin to tell each other. And then they separate again. And finally, hopefully, uh, they separate for good. Now, when they come in for therapy and they're going to try and save this marriage, one of the criteria that I use is you can't see this person. You can't have any electronic, digital, handwritten notes, visual, verbal, uh, anything. No contact with him or her for, during the time you're working with me. Because she's a very powerful drug inducement to him. It's like a quick fix. Mm. So is the dynamic different? You said men will come home to money and to children, but not so much because they're in love with a wife, because they were probably bored. I mean, somehow they probably fell into a, a phase where they weren't maybe turning towards each other, so he doesn't have these fond memories of his wife, so to speak. Heartbreaking to me. But on the flip side, what if it's the woman who's stepping out? What would bring her back home? Well, usually the, the kids are a very important factor to her. Uh, and she's the one who has a tendency to become highly effective, effective at hiding it. We talk about closet drinkers for alcoholics. Uh, women hide. They have a lot to lose. They often don't have the kind of uh, financial resources that their husbands have. And uh, so they'll keep it in secret and pretend and try to put on a good face. It's, it's very interesting. Um, we have this dual um, approach to this. You know, it's okay for men. Some people think that. And, and it's not good for wives because they've got to be the stalwart ones and take care of the kids and the family. But the thing you've got to realize today is when this culture, this younger millennial culture sees rings on people's fingers, they don't think of that person as off limits. Hmm. What they think is, you know, you made somebody else happy. Maybe you can make me happy, too. Wow. Or in place of them. And so we see what is called mate poaching on the rise. And in one large study just released in 2014, 60% of the men and 53% of the women said they had, single women said they had tried that. Wow. Because that would feed the grass is greener syndrome, wouldn't it, really? It's like, oh, well, if, you've, if, yeah. if you've, you're happy with them, you know, you just, I just need to find somebody who I can be happy with. And Yeah, you're experienced. You know how to hmm. do this. <laughs> wow. Wow. You know, I I mentioned this last time you were on the show, but I have a dear friend and uh, love her so much. And she and her husband were leaders in their church and respected in their community, three young little boys. And he met someone at work, young girl, quite a bit younger than him. And I think he was an elder at church, but he preached at the pulpit once in a while. And uh, he 
you know, got involved with this young gal and some of the guys, the godly guys from church got in his path and said, you're not making this decision. You're not throwing away your family reputation. And he said, get out of my way. Yes, I am. And he walked away. And I, you know, I look at what the damage caused. He tore his wife's heart in half. And these young boys watch this and are so jarred that he just chose a different, he's starting a different family with this other gal. You know, it's like that that people can get so lost in the passion that they can leave a wreckage of people behind them. I mean, it's mind numbing, but I know it's like you say, they don't start out that way. They change the rules a little at a time, don't they? They do, but they also move into a vacuum in in the marriage. Hmm. But still, the very best protection for a marriage uh, from uh, infidelity, adultery, is to have a good marriage. And that means you elevate your relationship, the marital relationship, above that of the kids. And there's lots of couples who don't do that. That's true. The man disappears as the kids come into the marriage. And he becomes a paycheck. He's on a hamster wheel. And uh, he functions, but they don't have a lot of time. They don't have a lot of energy. They don't have any money for just themselves. And so they fail to teach their kids that you're going to leave here in 20 years, but we're going to be together until we're 80. So we're going to make it work. We're not going to sit down at the breakfast table when you walk out of the house and say, who in the heck are you? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there is a vacuum that often this kind of thing develops. But it's avoidable. I mean, it's marriage is hard work, but it is. We've got a minute before our hard break at the bottom, so you can pick this up on the other side. But I saw a Facebook post the other day that made this statement, something to this effect. I wonder why people are so willing to spend an exorbitant amount of money on their wedding but so little on their marriage. And you and I have talked about this plenty of times before. Spend stinking money on your marriage, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. There isn't any more important relationship in the home than the marriage. You teach your kids how to love their mama and how to love their daddy, uh, you know how much you do, you're going to be fine. They're going to, they're going to love this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but we have to steal it from the kids. They don't hand it to us. They never say, <laughs> oh, Mom, Dad, you go out. You know, you work so hard here. Yeah. Take Here's bucks. my allowance. Yeah. <laughs> Take you my piggy bank. Steal it from them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we're talking, you know, you may need money for marriage counseling, but we're even backing it up from there. How about preventative care? How about you spend, you make sure, hard, fast rule, we go away a couple weekends, or, you know, a week, a year, and a couple weekends a year, whatever it is. Find a way to do it. Spend some money on your marriage. Talking, well, to, go, We have to take a break here, Dave. I want you to speak to that on the other side, though, okay? I'm talking to Dave Carter, Anatomy of an Affair, How to Guard Your Marriage from an Affair. One of the best ways, Dave says, is have a good marriage. We'll be back in a minute. Really glad you tuned in today. I'm Susie Larson. This is of the Promise, talking to author, counselor Dave Carter. She's written another great book. This one's titled Anatomy of an Affair: How Affairs, Attractions, and Addictions Develop, and How to Guard Your Marriage Against Them. And Dave's worked with plenty of couples who've been really blown up by the impact of an affair, but who've rebuilt their lives. So if you're somebody who's been walking in the shadows, dabbling in a way you shouldn't, you need to come back out and with the with the help of a counselor, work on your marriage. And Dave, before the break. 
I was saying about talking about this Facebook post that I saw the other day, and it says, uh, why are we so willing to spend an exorbitant amount of money on our wedding, but so little on our marriage? And I know you have more thoughts on spending money on the marriage, so have at it. Well, I think one of the most important things is you need to treat each other, the spouses do, like they would if they had a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. You would see them in the afternoon. You would make extra efforts to meet with them. You wouldn't have to meet. I used to take MFT interns to Starbucks so we could identify the couples having affairs. Of course, that was their favorite time. Wow. They loved they loved, and to the, I even had one guy bring opera um, binoculars to, so he could see. It's not that hard. Mm. People who are involved with somebody else, they're very caring. They're warm. There's lots of wonderful touching. They follow each other to the car. They can't leave because they don't know when they're going to see each other again. Hmm. So it's very interesting stuff that happens when you fall in love. If you've ever seen some 80-year-olds who both have lost their spouse to cancer or some kind of death fall in love again, they're like kids. (laughs) So you can build that in your marriage. You definitely can. can. Hmm. Feel those kinds of times and make them happen for you. Love that. So we were talking about the four phases of a close call. For those who just hopped in their car, just tuned in, the first one was that growing mutual attraction where you just sort of notice the other and maybe you notice them noticing you and there's just sort of a mutual attraction. And then you cross over to entanglement where one or both admits there's an attraction here. So suddenly, as Dave says, you have a secret stash to draw from and you're changing your plans, maybe making sure you dress a certain way when you bump into that person. And then uh, the third one is, let's see, I want to make sure I got these here, uh, destabilization of the relationship, where not only you have destabilization in relationships, but your health and your job, your work performance. The fourth one we haven't talked about yet is termination and resolution. Speak to that one if you would. Well, termination of an affair is rarely mutual. And one person decides they've had enough and they try to step out which provokes all kinds of anger, hostility, and some other kinds of very bad behaviors like stalking and uh, trashing people's reputations and sending all the pictures you have of them on, posting them on Facebook, mm. or destroys the, the spouse, all that kind of retaliation. Um, or if you do leave and you do want to stay in the marriage, one of the things you have to figure out, is there enough left to save? How long has this gone on? How many times has this happened? Sometimes the marriage is so injured over a long period of time by these kind of behaviors, it's very difficult to say. There's not much left in it. And when you do work through it, you have to work through the whole forgiveness process. You have to restore respect. And to the degree you restore respect, you can restore trust. And to the degree you restore trust, you can restore love if you want to. So it's really... Forgiveness, respect, trust, and love. I would imagine you'd throw humility in there as well. I mean, we have a a friend from years ago who was in a leadership role in church and had an affair. And the way that he handled it is just, I've never seen or heard anything like it since then. But he was so broken over his decision. He went to his wife and to some of his closest friends and he said, ask me as many questions as you need for as long as you need. Um, I want to rebuild this bridge. I was the one who blew it up and I want to rebuild it. And there were times when his wife would, it seemed like they were going along fine. And then she would get just fear would come up and he'd just stay humble and he'd say, talk to me. 
what any more questions you have for me. And since then, Dave, I've heard of situations where the spouse who committed the adultery tells the other one, let's just move on. I just want to get past this. They're never yeah. in a position to do that, are never. they? Ever. I didn't no, think so. have another affair in that marriage. Exactly, because otherwise they're not broken. Susie, you're living with that. Mm. Who wants to do that? Right. I mean, truly, though, it's, it's almost cruel, I would think, to say, I blew up oh, this bridge, and now I just want us to pretend it didn't happen. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes people get snookered. Uh, they, they meet somebody who goes through life seducing the opposite sex. Mm. Seriously. There's lots of people out there like that. They even have labels for people like that. So, and we're seeing more and more of those kind of people. You know, that narcissistic personality is very common in men, and that borderline personality that's very common in women. These people yearn to be attached, and they can't, but they appear very seductive, warm, caring. You're the living in. I've been looking for you all my life, but it ends up. If you'd been better and you'd been more, I wouldn't have to leave you and break your heart like this. Mm, wow. Well, you also... so we talk a lot about that in the book because it, that's an attachment injury in childhood, and those people are becoming more prevalent on the planet. Wow. Well, again, you see the accumulation, Dave, of, of the society. I mean, I guess this, oh. is, this is symptomatic of it, isn't it? Oh, oh. When you have all the divorce and you have abuse, and, you know, there's four A's that destroy marriage. Abuse, addiction, abandonment, and adultery. Mm. All four of them do. They destroy it. Wow. So these people have been through this. They lived through this as kids. They learned to survive. And they go through adulthood looking for somebody to fix that attachment, fix that injury, and they never will find it. But they'll continue to pursue that plot, that, that plan that they go through, looking for the right person to make me whole again. Mm. Well, you also identify five classes of affairs. I thought this was very interesting. I would love to talk about them. One is the one-night stand. I mean, that's obvious, but again, those are those. It's some of the stories you share in the book. I mean, one guy who I think he just was frustrated and tired with his, of his wife, and he went to do some work at a restaurant, and it was an empty restaurant except another woman across the restaurant who was also working alone. I mean, talk about the whole idea of a one-night stand and how that, I'm sure, broadsides some people who never intended to go there. Oh, it does. And, and you know, when I first got into this, I just thought of adultery as adultery as adultery. But the first four classes of adultery all have biblical examples. Every one of them does. Mm, wow. This stuff's been around for thousands of years. So David and Bathsheba is a great illustration of this. No intention, no plan, no walking to the window looking, so to speak, for someone. But when he got there, he saw someone. And this is where we find alcohol is a major problem in these kinds of one-night stands. People drink too much. They go back. Uh, to the hotel room inappropriately. Maybe they've gone out on a, what I call corporate dating. They've been sent out with the same business, fly together to see clients in another city. Hopefully they choose rooms in different hotels, but they eat together. They drink way too much alcohol. Company pays for all that. They go through the entertainment, and they go back to the hotel night. Now, that has all the components of a date. Okay, It's just that they're not married to each other. So we see more of that all the time. Mm. Now, that... The result, the outcome of that can be very much like Absalom and Tamar. He fell in love with his half-sister. He talked his dad into taking food to her. He did. He seduced her. He raped her. And then the Bible says his hatred, he hated her with the same degree of love he had for her. Mm. So this huge anger, hostility, resentment, uh, 
pain that happens when people do this kind of stuff. It's unbelievable. It's painful. But, Second one, right. entangled affair. Yeah, this is the one where it starts out emotional. It might be a platonic friendship. They might work together. They built this relationship over time. Maybe never started out thinking about sleeping with each other, but eventually get there. And, and the uh, the whole idea of this one is Samson and Delilah. We we never see Samson and Delilah in, in any kind of a sexual pattern. But this man was so infatuated with this woman that he could not stay away from her, even though he knew she was trying to kill him. So he just continued to play along. And as a result, he got in terrible trouble. And these people become so addicted to this emotional high, this soulmate. It just makes me sick when I hear this. But they call this my soulmate. I've been looking for this person forever. So, and they've been starving the marriage for a long time and feeding this friendship and sharing things they like together and developing rituals and choosing music that kind of tells their story and all that kind of stuff. What's so interesting about that one, I read one of the stories in your book about uh, a woman whose husband was workaholic and gone all the time and she was just dying on the vine and then she connects with a guy and so she starts to lose weight she starts to get dressed up and her husband thinks yeah. well she's finally seen the light she's settled into a mode that she can handle my work schedule where in fact she was connecting with with another guy at the time yeah. wow yeah hmm. yeah you know and i see the other side of that there are guys who travel a lot who would love for their wives to go with them i, I have a friend who used to work in france his company was owned by a company in paris and they would send him over there twice a year, business class tickets for corporate meetings, and they would pay for his wife to come too, but it was just too much trouble to take care of the kids for a week or ten days. Wow. And I told her, I said, honey, there are many women who would love to take care of your husband for ten days. That's okay. right. Do well, it. <laughs> that's exactly right. Okay, this next one, sexual addiction, where there's no emotional, no relational connection here. Now. Yeah, this is just sex for sex's sake. Eli's sons did this. They took women who were standing and they uh, took them aside, put them in a tent, and had sex with them and turned them loose. There was no uh, relationship at all. God was angry at it. He told Eli, you need to make your son stop. He didn't, so God killed the two sons and God killed Eli. Hmm. So this is a very serious offense. And it's not an affair. It's an addiction. It's a compulsion. It often starts in uh, elementary age and works its way through junior high and high school. It's not about sex. It's about medicating yourself. You've chosen the feelings of orgasm to medicate your pain is what you're doing. Wow. Wow. It is an offense, you think, on every front. Wow. So an add-on affair, what's that? Well, this is where a, a couple... Uh, have no intention of, of uh, leaving their marriage. Uh, maybe they've joined a gym or a hike. We have hiking clubs at our church. We have bike clubs. So they'll get involved in something like that, and they just become, they build this friendship, and they only see each other at this shared activity, the worship team rehearsals or feeding the poor or on the hiking team or going on a cross-cultural mission trip. That's the only time they interact with each other. They don't email, they don't text, they don't have lunch together, they don't date, they don't send cards to each other, they don't meet. They just meet around this shared activity that their spouses often don't like. And as it, over time, this friendship becomes an add-on to the marriage. 
And sexual activity, if it does happen, is very rare. Very, it's not very common at all. But there's no plans to leave the marriage. So and that's more of a, an emotional affair most of the time, an emotional, like most you're filling time, a void for me that I just don't have at home? That's right. Hmm. That's right. It's an emotional affair most of the time. And they look forward to it. These kind of affairs can go on 7, 8, 10. I knew one that went on for 30 years. Wow. Wow. Okay, the final one. Uh, we have, I've been talking five classes of affairs. One-night stand, entangled affair, sexual addiction, add-on affair. The fifth one, reconnection. Talk about that one. <laughs> this only started in 1995 when the Internet became available. Wow. Because this is where you find an old girlfriend or an old boyfriend from adolescent years. And you check back with how you doing. And you start sharing memories. And remember when. And, and it, it put it, initially it's very innocent and you're kind of catching up with each other. But this is the pattern. This is the rule. If you stay in touch with an old girlfriend or boyfriend for 30 days, you will become confused and start thinking you married the wrong person. And if you stay in touch with them for an additional 30 days, you'll be finding ways to meet and sleep with them. You never, ever forget adolescent loves and adolescent romances. Never. Nothing good can come out of reconnecting with old flames. Nothing at all. Talking to Dave Carter, expert on uh, affairs, on marriages. His book is titled Anatomy of an Affair. Subtitle is How Affairs, Attractions, and Addictions Develop and How to Guard Your Marriage Against Them. He's helped so many couples. We've got three copies of this important book. Just a great equipping book. I think you need it. We've got three copies. Email me if you want in on the drawing. Don't forget that mailing address. Susie at MyFaithRadio.com. We'll talk about risk factors in a marriage in a high-risk profile. What does that mean? More when we return. Great song. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Susie Larson. This is Of The Promise. Talking to Dave Carter. Title of his book is Anatomy of an Affair, How Affairs, Attractions, and Addictions Develop and How to Guard Your Marriage Against Them. And, you know, I confess I've been just delving in so much to this content. Got an email from a listener. She's saying as someone whose parents had an affair, she was hoping to hear more about how to affair-proof our marriage. And I've been asking you mostly about these different types of affairs. So first, I want to apologize for that because I can see how that would stir up more fear uh, than hope and faith. So let's just spend our last uh, bit of time together, last 10 minutes or so, Dave, talking about the good news. I mean, uh, how, to, as you said, one of the ways, to, the best way to affair-proof your marriage is to have a healthy marriage. But just speak to some of those aspects of, of daily things we can do to strengthen our marriage and protect against an affair. Yeah, when couples try to repair uh, a marriage uh, broken by an affair, we talk about reattachment exercises. Uh, and there's five of them in the book. Um, of course, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of anxiety, there's anger. And so you need a set of exercises where you can put the couple back together that's going to calm the anxiety and soothe and smooth out the anger. So how do you do that? Well, you do it the same way they started. We've known from research for years that all the way going back to mother and child stuff, that non-sexual touching, sensate-focused exercises, as we call them, are very 
soothing. They provide a sense of safety. They provide a sense of security. They calm down breathing. They lower heart rate. They lower blood pressure. And couples don't do this. Couples actually get into a bad place where they touch each other when they want sex. And that's the only time they really touch each other. Or they're afraid that if they touch each other in front of the kids, well, that's going to be a bad influence. Heck, no. <laughs> kids need to see a healthy relationship. They need to see that mom and dad like each other and are playful with each other. So there needs to be that reattachment, that series of non-sexual touching exercises. Then I always have my couples uh, put together a list privately, alone. Even even a marriage gone through an affair has good history in it. I've, I have met a few marriages, totally bad, but not very many. So we have them identify the eight greatest experiences, emotional experiences, in their history together, including their dating life. We call it the eight greats. You can't include your wedding, and you can't include the, the birth of your children, and you can't include anything that your children are with you in that experience, and you cannot include anything with other couples. Just the two of you. What was the eight greatest experiences you had? Hmm. Now, most good marriages will have four to five that match. And so we say, okay, wife, you've got six, he's got seven, you've got eight. This is the stuff you do best. That's so fantastic. Go ahead. I'm sorry, that's just fantastic. That's a great, great yeah. exercise. Keep going. Yeah. Well, several years ago, the cost of a divorce in Orange County was $35,000. That was an average cost. So if you divide eight into 35000 that means you could spend $4,500 on each one of your merged list of eight greats, and you still wouldn't pay what it would cost to divorce each other. Wow. <laughs> that's pretty that's good. eight cruises, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing, is it takes intentionality. It takes turning towards each sure other. Does. Yeah, asking sure. questions to each other. Yeah. Mm. Now, I also like um, Gary's stuff on love languages. We use that. I love the Yurkovich's stuff on how we love, which is attachment theory and marital relationships. And, and then I love this other exercise that comes out of the secular world. Um, it's, I call it a compliment prayer list. You get yourself two little notebooks, okay, the kind with the wire spiral around the top of it. And every day you identify something different that you like about your spouse just make a just list it across the top and then you put two or three sentences while you like it and then that night before you go to bed for christian couples and i have other couples that aren't christian and they don't do the prayer part but if you're a christian couple you can lay there in bed and you can say dear god i want out loud in your spouse's presence dear god i want to thank you for bill's um wonderful sense of always smelling good <laughs> i love it when he comes to bed at night after he's showered. I love it when he comes home from work and smells like a million bucks. Simple things, but you can't ever repeat them. Now, first time my wife and I did this, I chose, one of the things I chose was her smile. My wife's got a great smile. And the three things I listed below was I like seeing her smile when I first come home at night. I like seeing her smile across the crowded room when our eyes meet. And I like seeing her smile at me after we've had a big disagreement. Hmm. And I prayed that prayer that night out loud, in front of her and God. You do that 30 straight days. There is research on this. A married couple, both clinical psychologists, spent their entire life examining this behavior modification tool across cultures, genders, ages, pre, post, and six-month follow-ups. It will change your marriage. 
The problem with most couples who get involved in infidelity, they started focusing on the bad stuff. That's true. And there's something that happens in our brain when we rehearse and rehash. It's like our brains ah. help us and create these pathways, ah. making it easier and easier to default ah. to the negative, right? No question, Susie. Hmm. That's the only way you can think unless you consciously decide to do something different. Right. Wow. So I want you to re- reiterate again. So the eight great, so you each list your eight best memories with the spouse. That doesn't include kids, other couples, doesn't include weddings and, and birthdays of babies. So it's eight, your eight great. And then oftentimes yeah, be, half of them. Your honeymoon. Mm-hmm. It, can be any, it doesn't have to be a big thing, though. It, your eight greatest emotionally, uh, emotional experiences with, with your spouse. Yeah. And then typically you, know, you say half of them match. Go ahead. Say, no, you go ahead. Well, I was going to say, people say something, just eight. I said, that's all it takes, just eight. Hmm. If you have some good history, pull it out, say it now, okay? It's amazing what happens. And then you say oftentimes, you know, there's that four or five will be matched that they'll say to each other, you know, exactly. oh, same things. But then I suppose you get some new information as well because you realize that what meant something to your spouse, maybe you even missed and realized, didn't realize the significance of it. That can happen, and it does happen, but also what happens is the spouse will say, oh, yeah, I forgot about that, but that was a great time. So instead of having eight, you usually end up having 12 or 14 of them. Man, that's fantastic. And then you get your spiral notebook. This costs you nothing. Each day write something new that you appreciate and are thankful for, and then you say it in a prayer that they hear at night. That's great. You know, Paul told us to think positively Mm. about people. Yeah. Wow. Any other pieces of advice for those listening who want to affair-proof their marriage? Well, can I say one of the things, Susie? Do I have time to tell you about a, a really famous experiment, American psychology on this? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, back in the 70s, uh, a whole raft of experiments uh, started, began, which have been built into what we call misattribution of attraction. You can Google it, okay? Anybody can. This researcher uh, built two footbridges that went up. uh, They were high and uh, fairly substantial, and uh, they were identical, except the first one was well-bolted down and had steady guy wires, and the second one, which was out of sight from the first one, wasn't. It had bolts that were loose, guy wires that were loose, so when you walked across that one, it shook badly. So this first researcher brought in 20 college males, walked them across the bridge one at a time. When they finished walking across the bridge, he handed them an evaluation of a college co-ed, an average-looking college co-ed, sitting at the end of the bridge. They were going to measure how attractive she was. Then he brought the same group back and the same college co-ed and had them walk across the shaky bridge. Guess when that college co-ed was most beautiful? Walking across the shaky bridge. That's when the guys felt most attracted to her. That's when they rated her as more beautiful. So when you go through high-stress periods of your life, that woman crosses your field of vision that you think you would like to get involved with to escape what you're going through currently, she's not near as good-looking as you think she is. Hmm. Wow, it's fascinating. We just have about a minute and a half left. Just give me a couple examples of creative ways to spend money on your marriage. Well, one of the measures of the strength of a marriage or of any friendship is how many rituals you have. 
Now, a ritual has nothing to do with the calendar. It has everything to do with an anticipated experience that would be disappointing if it didn't happen. It can be as small as taking coffee every morning to your spouse uh, it can, or calling every day at 10 o'clock or having little code words that you send to each other or a tease, sexual innuendo and teasing that you might do between each other on your cell phones or something. It's just a ritual, and you need rituals in this culture. Kids take time away from parental rituals, and you usually have them when you first started dating and when you were first married without kids, and you need to go back and recultivate them, and they need to be on a daily basis, little tiny ones. They maybe need to be on some monthly basis. They maybe need to be on where you go to eat food and kind of building up a reputation there with your with your story there, it might be a, a trip you need to. Oh, we have to pause here where our hard break is coming. This is wraps up our one talking to Dave Carter. Thanks so much for tuning in. Title of his book again is Anatomy of an Affair. When we come back, we'll talk to Dr. Bennett Omalu about his book, Truth Doesn't Have a Side. Wait to hear what he has to say. Don't go away. Hour two is coming up next. <laughs> 